everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches His Dark Materials Season 1, Episode 8, Betrayal. 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 It's the Season 1 finale, and I am one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, or maybe as Arithmetric on Twitter. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet as Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, or LizaNarberGold.com. Wow. They did that on TV. They did it! Uh, on TV and not the, not a movie. This goes to so many people, you know? They killed him. Yeah. Jack Thorne murdered Roger. How could you, Jack Thorne? It was good. It was really, really good. The episode. I think they did it. They nailed it. I think they nailed it, yeah. Um, I think this was probably one of the best episodes of the season. Yeah, I, I think they, a lot of their choices, you know, in the earlier episodes, like the first episode, ties up so well with what they gave us here. I, th- I mean, the pacing's a lot better th- and the editing. They just did such a great job. Yeah, a lot of the middle of this felt kind of murky. Um, sure. I'm not going to name any names, but there were some episodes that got a little lost oh, on yeah, the way. Yeah. But I think the first and last episode were very much so sharply framed. Just yeah. boom, boom, heavy hitters. Yeah, they stuck the landing. And I think, you know, in many ways, that's what matters. Well, thank you, everyone, for waiting for us. You know, this is coming out a little later. It is the holiday season. As Chloe said, Jack Thorne did this, gave us a wonderful Christmas present in with the season finale. But we also uh, have a Patreon, and this month's episode is going to be focused on the lantern slides that are at the end of each of the three main books, which, by the way, are all fair game in this very spoilers-all episode. Yes, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. That's what we have under the tree for you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah open the box what is it everything that's ever happened a severed head well that's not what i meant even me i i too could be spoiled as you all <laughs> it learned. could happen to anyone <laughs> yeah did you guys appreciate that i leaped out the spoilers <laughs> so that you didn't get spoiled but eliana was already spoiled uh, i mean i don't know how all well those the bleeps actually really covered it I think they were perfect. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about our Lantern Slides episode. We're going to have that up right in the nick of time before 2020. So be sure to check that out if you haven't seen them before. Uh, if you haven't read the book, even, you are just getting spoiled like crazy in these podcasts. Yeah. But at the very end of the main trilogy books, there are Lantern Slides. And believe it or not, we'll get into this in just a hot minute, but the Lantern Slides are actually being looked at. For the writing of this show. Yeah. I, they're really pulling from a lot of great places. Like, we don't always agree with some of the choices, but I think that they've really captured a lot in this show. So, clearly a labor of love. Absolutely. I feel at least semi-trustworthy that they got it. I trust them more than Asriel. I know that they love the books. So there's that. We have that going on. It's in common. Commonality. <laughs> yes. Last time on His Dark Materials. Boreal. Lord Boreal is a creep, of course. He, you gotta leave Elaine alone. Also, as we all know, John Perry, aka the hot priest from Fleabag, is still alive. Will is a murderer. He has killed a dude. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Our little boy. After conquering the bears, Lyra searches for Asriel with Yorick and Roger. Under pressure from work. Marisa must find Azriel. Lyra brings a gift to Azriel, but it's not what you think. And then James McAvoy is about to earn his entire paycheck. <laughs> um, I'm totally just kidding, but it does turn out the original actor dropped and he had to fill in and somehow he fit 20 days of shooting in 
while he was also filming the second It movie. Wait, who is the original actor? Yeah, um, the original actor is not something that's info out to the public. I tried, I searched, I begged, I looked, but no, nothing yet. I'm sure it'll come out in the next whatever time. I'm sure we'll learn who the original actor was supposed to be, but it ended up being James McVoy. And he filmed for 10 days for the first episode, and then the other 10 days he filmed were for the last episodes. That's nuts. That is. His whole role. 20 days. <laughs> they go on. Uh, there's way more, too. There were different versions originally of Asriel in the show. One of the versions had him in every episode. Uh, one version had the audience seeing him captured by the bears. But they ended up settling on what Pullman did, the easiest thing. Asriel in the first, Asriel in the last. And from what Mikavoy has kind of said in some of the interviews, I think we're going to see more of the made-up Asriel stuff in season two because you really lose that fan base for Asriel since he's not doing anything. You just hear him talked about. That is kind of what we saw a little bit in the Golden Compass movie, right? We saw uh, Lord Asriel, aka James Bond, yeah, in A Journey <laughs> in the North, and I think he doesn't get captured by the bears, right? Because there's a budget. It was the mm -hmm. Tartars, I guess? Yep. So I get I can see why they thought that would work because they're like, I guess they did it in the movie, but mm -hmm. I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, I'm glad they played around with it though and they found that what worked is what worked. Yeah. There's a lot of info in an EW interview that came out a bit ago from Nick Romano covering season one and some cool stuff about the future. Really cool stuff about Coulter's outfit. Some of the stuff we've talked about, but specifically the costuming, Carolyn McCall said that she wanted Coulter to be in stuff that was very satiny or very, like, you want to touch it. Just like her demon. Just like we were talking oh. about last episode, how you want to touch her clothing, but also it's sharp. Like, it's material that's so inviting and so fancy, and you just want to stroke it, but then it's cut in a very sharp way. And she's wearing it in a very sharp way, and it's not, like, something you know. Like, you look at it and you're like, wow, that looks dangerously beautiful. Yeah, I thought that was great. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. But there's also something that I thought was really interesting about Asriel and that Jack Thorne and Jane Tranter actually tracked all of Asriel's movements throughout the books and made a timeline of events that they brought to the author, to Pullman, to get kind of some advice on. And Pullman told them different things he had in his head that weren't on the page. And there were even other things, like I said, in the appendixes, in the lantern slides. The script editor, Zandria Horton, says that they found stuff there that gave them more of a window into what was going on between Asriel and Stanislaus. So they went really deep on this. Um, they also were really excited about Mrs. Coulter being able to separate from the monkey, and they decided in their heads that it was probably as an adolescent, maybe a latent adolescent, that she trained herself through the pain. Interesting. I like that kind of idea that she did it because she was like in so much pain from what had happened, but whatever. Um, yeah, I think that's such a great insight on the costumes. I love hearing all the thought that goes into it. And I think you can see from the fan reaction how successful they were, because I feel like Mrs. Coulter's outfits have just been a talking point in general. They've nailed Everyone's it. Everyone's talking about them. Yeah. Uh, on a thematic level, I again, yeah, I think that the choice to not include Azrael in every episode, echoing Pullman's own choice for that first book, and, you know, it shows so much of Azrael's absence in Lyra's life, and that makes, I think, that these last moments in this episode very impactful, and I kind of think that, that this absence is very in line with a lot of the religious themes in this book, that idea of, like, oh, 
what is happening to God slash the authority as they call him throughout this? Um, seems like he hasn't been around a lot, you know, that absent God slash father idea. So, and you really feel it in the books, right? Like Lyra is very, when he shows up, she's like, you're not going to visit for another year. Um, she sees him like annually. It's not, it's not a very common thing for Asriel to come to town. Yeah, it's not. So it it works well. And I think, you know, they did a good job of playing it up with Roger in that first episode as well. Uh, there was a user on Reddit, Akira with some dashes and stuff <laughs> that was talking about if Asriel would have used Lyra since he knew the Magisterium was on the way and he was out of options, would he have sacrificed her out of desperation if if Roger was not there? Um, and this person has not read the books. They're only going by the show. And they said that they can't imagine he'd leave the Arctic to find a child and go back. Good catch there for someone not even in tune to the books. I think he would have used Lyra. And that's why that line, right, that classic, I did not send for you. That's him looking up and thinking, like, oh, my God, this is what I get. Like, I'm out here trying to wage a war against God, and this is what I get. Yeah, this is the price you have to pay. Um, Stannis. Yeah. But uh, he does try to, like, shove her out, right, in this and send her away. He does try to send her away, so at least he puts in that effort. Um, I don't know. He probably would have sacrificed her. I think that you saying this, something clicked for me, especially in our discussions about sacrifice. So in episode two of when we were doing the reread of Northern Light slash the Golden Compass, depending on where you are in the world, these were chapters four through six of the first book. You were actually talking about the binding of Isaac and the sacrifice that God asked of Abraham in the context of the general oblation board and what the word ablation meant, which is, you know, that offering to God, literally the definition of the word. Um, and in the story in Christianity and in Judaism and in Islam, you know, Abraham is a God-fearing man, right? He got ready. He was like, I'm going to sacrifice my son. He was ready to do it, partially because he trusted in God's plan or whatever for him. Uh, in Islam, the belief in many sects is that the son who's brought for sacrifice is Ishmael, not Isaac, just throwing that out there for general knowledge and that there is no binding as Ishmael actually agrees to the sacrifice. And Abraham demonstrates his devoutness as he raises, right, this knife or maybe a blade. Knife, blade, it's same thing. Interesting thought. Above his own son, before an angel slash messenger stops Abraham because they're like, okay, you proved it. You did it. Your faith is very clear. And then instead, a ram appears from the bushes, and that's what Abraham sacrifices instead. And I think it it's really cruel the way that Roger kind of gets interpreted as these different things throughout the story. There was another thing, I forgot, a few episodes that were like, shit, does that mean Roger is this thing? And here, I, I don't love the idea of thinking of him as, like, expendable or, like, a ram, right? But it is interesting because that is how Asriel kind of sees him. That's how Roger sees Asriel's look on his face, right? As, like, a meal, as a prey. It's also interesting because Asriel's a man who hates the authority. He's willing to go to these lengths. And it's, again, this perversion of these religious figures and this idea, you know, had, had it been Lyra and that belief that the universe... Something was going to provide a sacrifice in the way that Abraham kind of trusted that God would. 
But rather than that immediate acceptance, he does tell Lyra first, like, I did not send for you, tries to get her to leave. Uh, and regardless, the universe does provide Roger as that ram for him. Yeah, he was definitely a sheep to slaughter. <sighs> Roger. I almost forgot that that happens in this episode. Like, I was getting really what? into the stuff you were saying, and then you were like, and then Roger's dead. <laughs> and then Roger died. Oh, oh I forgot about all of it. We got an email from John of Knoxville, the Prince of Sunsphere, who said, Chloe and Eliana, I enjoyed the book and show podcasts on His Dark Materials this season. I can't wait for the finale. I just finished La Belle Sauvage last week. Hmm. Interesting, Eliana. Interesting. Last night, I watched <laughs> Aeronauts on Amazon Prime. It's not great. Newt Scamander <laughs> and Jin Erso go up in a balloon and measure the temperature. Lee Scoresby isn't in the movie, but Lewin Lloyd, who plays Roger in His Dark Materials, is. He only has a few lines where he uses a very non-amber spyglass. Keep it up. <laughs> I love that. I didn't know that Lewin Lloyd did other stuff. Yeah. I, I guess I never looked. Me neither. I, I'm a I jerk. guess I was like, he's so young. This is clearly one of his first roles. But, you know, how else would he be such a good actor if he didn't have all this experience? He's really good. It's his face. He's got that cute little cheek. He was in a couple other things. He was in something called Taboo in 2017. Hmm. Um, yeah, that kid's going to go far. Is this child older than we think he is? He he acts so mature. He he delivers his acting so maturely. Not that he's acting mature, you know what I mean? I really don't know. It, there's nothing. There's no Wikipedia for him or anything. God, it's a mystery. Good for him. Yeah. Stay stay out of the spotlight, Lewin. You're doing great. Yeah. Stay in the so, Aeronauts. Is Aeronauts good? Because it just tells us. No, he said not good. Oh, you're right. You're right. All right. Well, yeah. at least I know not to watch Aeronauts. I mean, it sounds like it's a fun, fun show, theoretically. I think it's a movie. Movie? Hmm. I don't know what it is. It just doesn't look great. Well, I could try it. I could try it. Every now and then you need something on in the background. We also got another email. From our good friend Julie, who actually tried to send this a couple of times. And Julie, we got it. We got your email. Thank you so much for not giving up and sending it to us. <laughs> so Julie, aka Inky Pages on Twitter, says, Hi, I found my husband's reaction to the end of his dark materials really sad. He, despite having read Northern Lights in the 2000s, yo, the 2000s was a long time ago. I feel this. It, we're, we're going into 2020. Anyway, he thought it was only going to be one series, which, for clarification, for our American listeners, series means season, but in <laughs> British, but in British English. And Julie says he needs a hearing test because I had to explain Will being in this series a few weeks ago. He was really disappointed that the ending was such a cliffhanger. He was very upset by the treatment of Roger, who he agreed last week is a cinnamon bun. Oh no. Maybe he's forgotten the plot. I remember Julie raising this to us on Twitter, being like, my husband agrees that he's a cinnamon bun. Like, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. That's not... You know that he... Someone tell him. <laughs> I'm gonna tell him. He's mentioned it again today, that the ending needed to be more concrete because... In quotes, what if Lyra just keeps walking into light and never gets anywhere? That snake bloke got to our world really quickly. He wasn't faffing around in someone's life force. I think we need to see him as a non-book reader. Just like I did for Asmoth. I won't let him read the books. People are cruel to horses. And my tender-hearted man would never recover. 
It led me to a second question. Is that how you would end the show for a non-book reading audience? It's something I frequently ask myself about book-to-screen adaptations. Far more people will watch than will ever read. That's not a slam on readers at all. It's not possible to read everything that you want, but it is possible to fall asleep in the middle of the Golden Compass (laughs) film more than once. And then Julie wishes us, and I'm going to do what I did with Pat's email and extend it to all of you listeners, a happy Mm -hmm. holidays and new year. Um, And, uh, you know, thanks everyone for being with us this year. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Julie. Make sure you check her out on Twitter. It's at Inky Pages. As to where would you end the show for a non-book reading audience? I don't think I can answer this. I don't either. I think you'd have to end it at the end of the third book when all the windows get sealed back up and they have to go home. We're not going home. Not really. Harry Potter music. But this is where I do think I would end the season, right? Like, I can't I can't think of any other way because this is like just how I think it should have been. It's what was one of the failings, I think, with the first movie. The only movie. You have to kill Roger. I mean, it's the Ned Stark dying moment of this this series going. Yeah. I know that like sometimes cliffhangers like that can like I don't know be hit or miss for people and it it depends on how it's executed because I know that the first season of the OA and I kind of worry that this is part of why the second season wasn't as successful like the first season ended like on a cliffhanger but it felt like it was undoing everything but it didn't and I think that the second OA nailed having a cliffhanger that also opens possibilities in a good way so Save the OA. I feel, I, I, and there is that worry about season two, right? We just don't know how it'll be. Let's be real. It was recorded right away, right? Like they filmed season two so fast. Uh, and it does make me wonder, you know, what kind of, uh, not critic, I guess critique, you know, what kind of critique might come that maybe they should have listened to in between those two. Like we'll see what they come up with product wise. I think something they have really strong going for them is that they know their boundaries. They know, what they want to be episode one and they want to be the last episode, episode eight of each season, it feels like. So they know kind of where their constraints are, right? Yeah. And I think they're planning accordingly, which is good. And and that's something that comes through in that interview that you just discussed. They talk about some of those boundaries, not just like in terms of storytelling of where they want it to be, but also they're like, well, this is what we have from the studio or in terms of budget. You know, that's why there aren't as many scenes with witches, Right. We don't get them in that final battle of this episode. They're like, we only had so much budget for this. And like, I feel that. Yeah. But next season, obviously, they have to be prominent. Yeah. And and they they did promise that. So at least they got greenlit for a second season. So we have that going for us. And I think, right, are they already starting work on the third? I think they are in pre-production. So we have all of that. Um, Again, I don't know how it how I would end the show for a non-book reading audience. Uh, listeners, if you have loved ones or hated ones or indifferent ones that <laughs> you know watch the show and have never read the books. Your Asriels, your Mrs. Colton. Yeah, please let us know what, you know, ask them for us and for Julie. Ask them what they thought about the ending, how they would have ended it, maybe if what their reaction was to it, and let us know. Let's talk about the episode. It be- opens up with airships crossing the sky, and it has magisterium men and women aboard. Woman. Yes, just one. One woman. One woman. God is a woman. 
Um, Coulter is aboard and she is fingering a revolver. It's a dramatic scene. There's good music. You know, kind of weird because the revolver really didn't come back because she didn't have to use it. It's a great point. Well, just putting that out there. Does she use it in like later books? I don't remember. Yeah, I think she does, but she doesn't use it now. Yeah. I'm- and it was really prominent. It is the first act, so maybe this is her Chekhov's gun. Oh my god, I'm maybe. Not that's joking. all I can think I'm of. I'm being very serious right now. No, that's really all I can think of, because... Because the third act, it has to go off by the third act. Third act's book. Third book, obviously. That's literally how the series is written. <laughs> well, actually, I don't know. I haven't, like, parsed it all out, but obviously. There's only oh. one mention of Revolver, and it's Lee. You know, they're probably gonna have her shoot at some point. Maybe while defending Lyra in the cave or something, you know? Maybe at the bomb. Yeah. Maybe. We'll see, but didn't happen this episode. No. Um, thought this was an interesting line, especially as you think about it in the rest of this episode and then the rest of the series. The speakers, you know, the overhead announcement thing, says, I implore you to channel the authority in this time of need. Anyway, that's it. They've been kind of skirting it a little bit. They're not going too hard into the religion, but they're going just enough, and it worked here. It was chilling creepy orwellian we get it yeah yikes the best place you could be oh the best place you could possibly be except for you know still mario nazril in their super cushy fucking lab which is actually a better place to be if you're not roger yeah they kind of argue very softly with each other or discuss that he needs to you know kill the boy and still mario then tells him it's time and asriel knows obviously obviously um the lab scenes are beautifully shot. Also, the audio is interesting. So in the scene, as we back out, right, of the Aurora, the Aurora, if you will. Um, am I wrong in thinking that in the audio I heard, I, I feel like I just barely heard what sounds like crackling noises as it zooms out from from it. Like, I know yeah. you brought this up in a previous episode. So, like, is that is that this? It sounded like it to me. It really did sound like it. I heard them, too. Um, and obviously at this rate and at kind of like how in depth they're going with this series it wouldn't surprise me if that was what it was it sounded like crackling noises and in that very last northern lights episode where we finished the book we did discuss that the aurora makes sounds they generate in the air about 230 feet above the ground according to finnish studies that use microphones to record and pinpoint the source of the surging hiss during a magnetic storm and this was from the 2016 Anchorage Daily News, but this happens all the time with the Northern Lights. Hmm. So yeah, uh, great detail. They did the research. Also a continuation of like talking about the framing shots that we've been seeing throughout this entire entire first season, which have been really fun, especially with the windows, because I'm never going to let these go. Uh, we, we have it again here, right? It's zooming out of the aurora and the mountain, then we find that we're looking at it through a window. Um, and there are calculations written on the window, and it ends up being overlaid on the aurora, and turns out Azrael has literally outlined the mountain on his window, which is- Yeah, I noticed that. Really fun. Great shot framing. And- I don't really understand science, but I wish I did, because I'd just, like, figure out what it all meant for us. Right. So, anyone, if you know how to do equations- and read science. And by that, I mean not smart-ass. science. <laughs> not smart-ass things about, like, oh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like, obviously, I know those kinds of equations. You know, if any of this means anything to you and actually is real things, please let us know. 
what's on this window yeah do we have any astrophysicists out there um no but i guess i could like try and find one if you're a you're an experimental physicist and you're listening go hit up my friend's ex-boyfriend be like hey we haven't talked in a while um i know that can you read can this can you read this for me <laughs> <laughs> do you speak it yeah i know we're not close anymore but uh anyway it is also a mountain in the books but it's something that you know stood out to me more as we literally see a mountain and lyra climbing it you know the mount- mountains make sense right of course it brings you closer to the heavens in a literal sense of closer to the aurora but like that's how people understood it in religion right you had mount olympus where like the gods lived on in in the Bible, you have Mount Sinai. Moses goes on it. He gets the Ten Commandments, comes back. In the Divine Comedy, Dante, his self-insert that is literally him, goes up a mountain, Mount Purgatorio, and at the top is the Garden of Eden. And uh, interestingly, it turns out the Sami people also have their own sacred mountain, Mount Aka, which means woman or old woman. And it has the nickname of the Queen of Lapland. Or something so oh. interesting real mountain stuff and anyway yeah i love being able to actually see some of that scenery here yeah anyway, i like the way that the scene ends and all the lighting in the lab from this scene on is just exquisite yeah and i really love that that photogram that we see of sitagaze yes i wanted to call it twitagaze but i love that because <laughs> it feels like a repeating focal point mm-hmm. that it just keeps being set down on counters and you see Asriel working over it. You see Lyra stare at it. You see Thorold, you know, holding it and putting it down. I think it's a really interesting focal point to kind of usher in what season two is going to be. Yeah, it, it does that. And also, like, it's so helpful for just part of why this episode's so strong. It all holds together. And just like this is an absolute banger of an episode, it's an absolute banger <laughs> of an intro song coming up next. There stops being good. It's good every single time. <sighs> and... You know, there was absolutely nothing new in this intro, right? Like, I was like, what if they do something new? Nothing new, but I don't want to leave you guys hanging because you know me. I notice something new every week. If you pay attention during Ruth Wilson's poof of dust when, like, her name goes on the screen, Mm -hmm. angel wings get very lightly etched, and then it looks like the form of an angel, and it goes poof, and it's gone. Yeah. The dust coming off during Makasa's actress scrolls on the screen the dust that poofs there Mm. is a bunch of feathers and wings like the egyptian bird demons Mm. yeah Mm. they did all a lot of them have birds and like of course tony costa with his falcon and i forgot who it was in real life in real life all right demons and dust which i guess is the organization or whatever that hbo is using it's the handle for the account for his dark materials and they're also sending out demon statues in cool boxes with cool descriptions of thank you we heard you were a fan and we wanted to send you what we think would be your demon right and they had an explanation about falcon demons being like sharp-sighted and things like that and for i forgot who received it and it came with a cool falcon statue. Uh, some people got like cool jackrabbit statues someone else got like a cool <laughs> whatever and the point is Hello, Demons and Dust. <laughs> Sponsor us. We would also like... I. We, too, are big fans, all right? I read these 16... I've said the number many times. 16 to 15 years ago. <laughs> 17, I don't know. Whatever. As the, as, we're at a weird time, okay? The 
Also, year... it's like, how are we supposed to choose our demons? We need someone else to yeah, do it Yeah, the us. year is turning. I need them to do it. And clearly, they've done it for these people. And those people were super jazzed to get their demon statues. And I just want them to know I would be super jazzed for someone to pick out a demon statue and send it to me and tell me who I am from an official publication like Demons and Dust, specifically from I'm them. I'm seeing you just deadpan to the camera like, I haven't been happy since the first time I read these books. Please send it to me. Yes, please. <laughs> So we're back from our intro song, and Lyra and Pan are looking through the lab. Azriel is hard at work on what Lyra doesn't know. He does not look happy to see her, but she positively beams at him. He's semi-impressed at her convincing Yorick to care for her, but he does not want her there. She asks him to tell her the truth, and he shuts her down, saying this is getting sentimental, and that he no longer wants to discuss her parentage with her. She wants to give him the alethiometer and take Roger with her and leave, but he doesn't need the alethiometer and it's also late. She's angry and she can't believe that he calls himself a father, but he says, that's the point. He's never called himself a father. Ooh, burn. Yeah. Fucker. Good character work here. Uh, really, James McAvoy killed it this whole episode. I'll give him that. I'm not, I'm not like 100% sure if I'm sold on him still. I just don't really? know. I need more of him. I, I need more. I don't know. But- I also just don't care, as we discussed last episode. But they're obviously trying to evoke some of this emotional weight with him and Lyra. Yeah, I think so. They actually split the scene, right? I thought it was a strong scene between Daphne Keane and James McAvoy. McAvoy, uh, when she first comes in to the room, there's this really great nonverbal acting at the beginning, and I do think that's separating this conversation of theirs from when they talk about what dust is which is how it's presented in the books i think divorcing those two moments from one another does as you said like it 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 really deepens and makes this more about their relationship and you know how he's never called himself a father which i think is a great contrast with mrs coulter especially at the end of the episode and i think that james mcavoy does give daphne a lot to work with here and i think she does an amazing job especially as how she like delivers you know how proud she would have been to call herself like his daughter like her eyes are shining she's looking off and it's just really really great that's one of the saddest parts of this to me is because you can see on her face that she's been wanting a parent right wanting someone to love her to be proud of her to be proud of for so long uh in the way she idolizes Azriel, the way all of his postcards or any mm, any yeah. sort of thing about him is just up on her wall it's almost like she was always hoping and praying and wishing that Azriel was secretly her father, and then he was, but then it turns out he was her father. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I, I, that's such a good point about how she would keep everything he sent her as memorabilia. Yeah, uh, she idolized him. He was an explorer. And that's something she idolizes in Marisa when she meets her, before True. she knows all of her evil and that she's her mother. Uh, she wants independence and freedom. Which is really what this story's about, right? In its root. It's free will. It's having that free will and that choice. And yeah, it's a bummer because he betrays her as much as she betrays Roger here, obviously. Yeah. Um, his betrayal is very hurtful betrayal. and it shows on Lyra. It is betrayal. It is. You know, she she hoped that maybe one adult would just not be shitty in her life. <laughs> yeah. And she dragged Roger on this whole thing. He yeah. could have gone back to Oxford with the Egyptians. I did love the line when they're talking <laughs> about Mrs. Coulter and she goes, your choice in women's almost as bad as your choice in bears. It was so Lyra. I laughed so hard because not only is it her 
ragging on him like yeah she sucks she's the worst but it's also her taking a moral standpoint like mrs coulter the worst yofer the worst like these are bad these are bad choices you're not making good choices yeah it it was a really great addition helps break up the scene but yeah I, it's so weird to think that asriel preferred yofer yeah Ugh. anyway it's weird that both of them preferred yofer to yorick mm. Yofer, I think, wanted to be that third. Thruple. 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 Um, I do feel like, I mean, obviously Yofer was just like taking their bets against, you know, each other. Like, oh, I'll play her like a fiddle. I'll play him like a fiddle. Uh, until obviously he learned, oh, Asriel's too fucking smart. Gotta lock that bitch up. Because yeah. Marisa, you know, paid him to. But <laughs> Marisa had bigger wallet, but. Yeah. But they saw him as the weaker choice is the bigger thing, I think. Easier to manipulate. To control a big part of this episode and series. <laughs> so, Maurice and the monkey are making angry monkey faces again. Father McPhail comes in, telling her that they'll be at the north by morning. They have the firepower and the belief of God. The authority on their side. But, of course, Azrael has science. <laughs> Father McPhail is afraid of Azriel's work, and Mrs. Coulter leverages it, leverages this against him. She feels no fear, while Father McPhail does. I do like the way this scene opens. I know that the monkey's supposed to be super scary, and it is for many people, and I know that this scene is probably very scary, like, in a good way, that it works for many people, but I feel like the bristling and, like, the, the, the itching on the back of him, of the monkey, is just hilarious for me. It's, like, the same feeling as when you, like, pet a dog, and there's that one spot towards the hind legs, and you just scratch it, and then their leg just, like, twitches, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's the best. Um, also, Mrs. Coulter, though, I- as she comes closer to being truthful about what she wants, she says it explicitly, right, at the end of this episode. Um, and it's what Lord Azrael wants her to do, be honest. We're finally seeing her be intimate with her demon and herself here. It's crazy to see her be intimate with her demon when she just told Lyra a few episodes ago, you know, oh, they're nothing but trouble. They cause you nothing but trouble in the end, those demons, those pesky demons. And I wish she would just read The Secret Commonwealth. <laughs> Chloe's you know, so disappointed in me. I just like, every time I try to say something, I'm like, no. Mm-mm. So, Father McPhail, emphasis on the fail, claims that Coulter was a melty young woman in the face of Azrael, fuck you, and shames her, and Coulter is like, so, uh, what sin is yours then, since you're so free of sin? Are you saying you're, like, really top tier, no sin? Lust, greed, no. Envy, she nails him with. She tells him that she's the best weapon he'll ever have. Your favorite weapon. Oh my god, the best album by Brand New. <laughs> I like seeing these behind-the-scenes things with the Magisterium. It makes some of the more disjointed bits of the story flow, like the hair bomb eventually. I think they'll be able to flush it out better and stronger because of this. Mm -hmm. A lot of the Coulter interaction this episode is going to do really well for her ending as well. Uh, the whole, whole entire season of Amber Spyglass, I'm rereading it right now for the first time, and I feel really disconnected from what Coulter and Asriel do in the end, from their ending. So I think that if they play this out strong for both of them now with these made-up background scenes, informing the audience of what they're doing, even though this is what they're doing, we just never have seen it, uh, I think it's going to be very effective for the whole audience. Because otherwise, I just, I'm just i worried that I won't connect with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with the way it's delivered. I understand like it's a very fast-paced story. 
it is they're young adult novels i get it and but i agree i think that they're doing a really good job of deepening all of this to make it work for all of that so i have a tinfoil theory not really theory but question of like i wonder if we'll see like those different manifestations of the seven homunculi aka deadly sins uh, with the magisterium woven through, like for Father McPhail, it's very, very, very obviously envy. We see Fra Pavel depicted as lust with Lord Boreal. That was Fra, Fra Pavel, right? And I mean, you could argue greed technically for like all of them, maybe. But I, I think that the envy is a, I guess maybe it is a bit pervasive because like you could argue that Boreal certainly has it when it comes to. Grumman, but I think it's a bit of envy and lust. I don't know. I'm really not sure how Boreal feels about Grumman. And <laughs> <laughs> you have pride and wrath for Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, absolutely. Fra Pavel and Boreal discuss Grumman in the next scene. Pavel tells him that Grumman discovered a knife in a tower surrounded by angels and that Grumman's son would carry it. But Pavel says this makes no sense because Grumman never had a son. Looks at camera. Right. That's all Boreal really needed to know, because Grumman may have no child, but John Perry sure fucking does. Yeah. In that moment, Boreal's face is like, God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> They're like, God damn it, it is that kid after all. This is obviously leading up to what we kind of thought it would, right? That we're going to have the knife probably by halfway through the season at this point. I'm saying like episode three, four latest. And I think this season really will end with Lyra missing in the cave. And with John Perry dying. Like like in the book? I think it's just going to be like, you'll see Lyra in the cave with Coulter's last shot. I think that makes sense for the end of a second act, right? Because it's Lyra in the cave and away from them. John Perry dying. And the, I mean, this is what Pullman does. And then I'm going to say something really hurtful here. The death of like that hope with, you know, also how the second book ends with Lee Scoresby. No, I don't think that actually happens. I'm taking my headphones off. <laughs> Chloe actually, literally, want, this isn't a real thing. She literally moved her headphones. She's taking an enormous swig of wine. Are you done talking I'm about the thing that doesn't done. happen? Done. Are you okay? Yeah, it's just an emotional thing for me. Okay, I think you're right. Thank you. I think it'll be the penultimate episode of the season. Yes, when that thing happens that we won't discuss. Do you mean final or penultimate? No, I think it might be penultimate. Huh. I think it'll be episode. Seven, maybe Why? we get his death. Why? Because you have to have the stakes get higher and higher. Mm. And once he dies, then you know, like that Grumman goes on. Yeah, and Will gets to him in the last episode, finally, and then that's true. You're right. You're right. It does have to be penultimate. Wait, did you say I'm right? Yeah, I say you're right a lot. I write it. I, <laughs> I write that you're right. <laughs> Chloe just loves hearing it. Uh, I do. Well. Asriel is bent over his table at work, speaking of people that love to be right, and Thorold approaches him. Thorold is worried for Lyra's amenities. He's like, I hope she has a toothbrush. And Asriel is not concerned. He's like, ah, there's a war that's going to be at our doorsteps within the next, like, five hours, so she can worry about her dental care another day. I have a bigger enemy to conquer, he says as well. Dun, dun, dun. And he asks Thorold to watch over Lyra. He doesn't plan on saying goodbye to her. The camera focuses on the frame of the northern lights. You can tell that Azrael's not a great father because he doesn't give a shit about if she's going to get cavities or not. I also like that they gave Thorold more bite in the show. You know, like, he just 
has a little more feist and speaks back to Lord Asriel as supposed to being like stepped on all the time, which is how he is in the books. And I do, he sets down this photogram of Sitagaze in the clouds, and part of it is what you were saying at the beginning of this episode, that it's like scattered throughout. But I do kind of feel bad, like, what? Thorold's like, oh, are you just leaving me after all we've been through together? Like, maybe Thorold wanted to check out the new world too, all right? He's kind of an explorer too, if he's made it all this way. I don't think it's just abandonment. Like, let Thorold explore. In a way, it does remind me of Roger and Lyra's kind of dynamic, Mm -hmm. especially with the episode where Pan's like, Lyra, do you really think that he wants to come north with us? Did you ever ask him? Maybe he doesn't want to come with us. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's like an opposite situation uh, to that. Like, Asriel would never ask, ever, but it would be the opposite problem. That Thorold wants to go? Yeah, and he would never ask. Yeah. So I hope Thorold, like, secretly sneaks through. <laughs> I hope Thorold is actually Metatron. Oh my god. <laughs> I've suddenly written a better book. Lyra bathes and Roger enters the room. He enters backwards with Salcilia in order to protect Lyra's modesty. Roger felt spooked by Asriel and asked Lyra, what does Lord Asriel want? Why did he look at me like an enormous piece of meat? Chloe has written here a 21 ounce medium rare T-bone, which yes, I was hungry. true, now I am hungry. Lyra tells mm-hmm. Roger that you know, my talk with my dad, I thought it was going to be a heart-to-heart, didn't go so well earlier. And Roger says trouble parents are more trouble than they're worth. Not saying no. And he's like, and that's why I don't have any. We can just pretend to be orphans together forever and leave this place. No parents attached. This, of course, brings us back to a moment from earlier in the Northern Lights, which I don't believe we really saw as much as, obviously, in this series adaptation it was in the golden compass but coulter makes pan turn away against lyra's nudity and it's very um in in the movie nicole kidman who plays coulter in the movie is very good at this moment i did like this when she's kind of like very evil you know and is like turn around to pan like yeah uh, uh." Uh, it didn't happen on screen this time but the quote from the book is then a bath with thick scented foam Mrs. Coulter came into the bathroom to wash Lyra's hair, and she didn't rub and scrape like Mrs. Lonsdale, either. She was gentle. Panelaman watched with powerful curiosity until Mrs. Coulter looked at him, and he knew what she meant and turned away, averting his eyes modestly from those feminine mysteries as the golden monkey was doing. He had never had to look away from Lyra before. Feminine mysteries. Feminine mysteries, us bathing in our own dirt. Uh, I think it's an important note that Lyra's changing and becoming an adult. Obviously, the main trilogy ends with her demon settling and coming of age, blah, blah, blah. But the story is confronting it here in the show in a different manner. It's showing Lyra and Roger's relationship changing, not only foreshadowing her future, but also moving us forward in the story. Totally the warning of innocence going to be lost soon. But not only in this, it also is a reference to Adam and Eve, because in this very chapter, and later in the episode with Azriel, we hear, God had told them not to eat the fruit, because they would die. Remember, they were naked in the garden. They were like children. Their demons took on any form they desired. But this is what happened. So yeah, tons of will foreshadowing, Lyra the Betrayer foreshadowing, making out with fruit foreshadowing, you name it. Yeah, absolutely. So, puberty's weird, Ben. Yep. Feminine mysteries, learning to shave. 
Boreal is in the Perry household, scolding his lackey, who, again, we refuse, uh, I refuse to learn his name, but I have just seen it. I have, dust has settled upon me. <laughs> He's apparently done nothing but mess up the plan so far. Not untrue. Lord Boreal is pissed, sends him off on a this is your last chance kind of mission to go find Will and also clean up Thomas's dead body. Boreal's like, I like Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined it. Uh, I did figure out his name. <laughs> Only because I'm like, we should probably do we're it. We're going to be with him probably for at least half a season until he dies. Maybe he'll die against someone, John Perry or Lee. I don't know. Maybe Lord Boreal. Maybe. Hopefully Lord Boreal. But he does have a name. It's Detective Inspector Walters. He put Wait, Detective Inspector? Yeah, he's a Detective Inspector. D.I. Walters. He puts an alert out for Will Perry, age 15. I thought that was interesting that they uh, had him age 15. Because I know... Because they aged, I know they aged Lyra up a couple years. He's 12 in the books, and Lyra's 11 when the books start. And she's 13, I think, in this adaptation, and he's 15. So there you go. Yeah. He's 15, and she's 13. Yeah, she ends She ends the series at about 13, and I guess what? That means Will ended at 14. Mm-hmm. Right, something so like I that. So I guess it's going to be or they're both 16, 17 for him, and 15 for her. Well, and that's why they filmed so close together. So the reason that they really did stock production the way they did is that they can't afford Daphne to grow up anymore. So they had to film right away. And they can take a little time because Amber Spyglass obviously covers a lot of time. So does the second season. So once you get to Amber Spyglass, they need her to kind of age up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, both of them, right? You can't stop them growing. And I think what I was also thinking of most recently is... A big impetus for Lyra going into the underworld and trying to figure out how is because she ha- she wants to make amends for Roger, and that boy's gonna grow up. That boy's not gonna be as, like, adorable for forever, especially, you know, when we see him again in two seasons. So yeah. that's a big part, too. It's gonna have to be a shadow kid. Or, or you know, theoretically, they might have already filmed it, but I doubt they would because they want to think through those elements. So anyway, yes. Real life things. Lyra and Roger talk and eat and play all night in a fort. And their demons play too. It's very sweet. They talk about Asriel. Roger suggests using the alethiometer to get a better read on him. But Lyra thinks the alethiometer would only tell her what it wants her to know. Roger tells her he's not like her. He would have never left before this. But here they are, changing each other's lives. He says he's glad that Lyra changed his life, and he gets her a mug, likely and hopefully full of chocolatel, and they continue talking and eating in the warmth of a naphtha lamp. Bummer. It is a bummer. Dude, watching this scene, I was like, this is a total bummer. Yeah, I'm so gutted. God, that kid is dead. And the blanket fort was such a genius choice. It was so sweet to show them Uh, playing and the demons playing and just innocence and innocence lost. Yeah. And I think that innocence is conveyed like they kept the fact that Roger doesn't want to know what's going to happen in the future with the alethiometer, especially if dust, sin, right, is knowledge. So maybe that's why Roger has to die in this like narrative symbolism, but he didn't. We love Roger. She doesn't just change his life, she's going to change his death too when, you know, Lou and Lloyd hopefully doesn't look too different two seasons from now. <sighs> they started pre-prod. It's fine. The roarer blazes overhead and Azrael checks in on the kids. He wakes Lyra and, requ- 
and requests that she comes with him. He tells her what dust is now that he has researched it in full. The magisterium used to ignore it, but now they think that it's sin and it falls and settles on adults, infecting them. <laughs> and that it only settles when children go through puberty. They end up quoting Genesis 3 5, but with demons and authority substituted in for a lot of the phrasing. The serpent's deception. You will not surely die, the serpent told her. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Or good and dust. Yes. So I do think it's interesting because in the books, the quote is almost exactly the same as the original biblical verse, but with demons substituted in, as you, as you said. But in this version that they read aloud, um, they changed it out so that it would have authority instead of God. Um, we, we discussed this more in depth with the actual entire quotes in our final episode of the Northern Light slash Golden Compass book. And, you know, we see it in an earlier scene, right? Where Mrs. Coulter speaks with Father McPhail, an earlier scene in this episode, and she speaks with Thorold, but the show, like, has really just doubled down on using the term the authority in place of the term God. Whereas the books, like, don't shy away from it, and they use them very interchangeably because, yes, Philip Pullman is making a critique on religion. Um, on a meta aspect, I think that, like, you know, obviously BBC slash HBO, this is their workaround, right? Like, in regards to trying to mitigate some of that religious backlash that they would receive. It's not like an ironclad workaround, because, and it's still pretty obvious, but I respect that they're, like, keeping to Philip Pullman's vision of the books. What it ends up doing within this context of the story and show, though, by making that choice, it ends up highlighting, I think, a lot of interesting theological thoughts in terms of God as a more of a rigid set of rules and dogma. You and I spoke uh, a few episodes, I think, about the lack of mention of Jesus within the show. And for the most part, the books, he's like mentioned twice in book three. And I think it's really interesting, especially like in terms of this Christmas season, because as Many of you know there are many different sects and interpretations of Christianity, as there are of, like, many other religions, and some of those are more focused on compassion, whereas, you know, this version of the Magisterium is more concerned with the idea of obedience, and I think that's part of the choice, right, to center the story on children and the main as main characters and in the context of these complex parental relationships. It makes it really interesting because parents, of course, are associated with rules, and I think this differs very theologically from the ideas of redemption or salvation that are very, very present in the story itself, even though it's not within this interpretation of religion. Because I've seen some of our friends and a lot of people online every now and then discuss this idea of the redemption arc. You're seeing people start questioning, like, questioning, like, why are so many stories focused on redemption arcs? And I don't think this is true for all of them, but I do think that there's something to be said that a lot of Western societies fixation on it might have to do with the presence of the the overarching presence of Christianity within the culture. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a great comment on that when you think about it because how much catholic guilt do I have? Like How much do, Yes, I agree, same. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's it's just interesting that different interpretation. Azrael tells her that there's worse of what's happening right now, because the magisterium is using this power and this authority to control people. 
Lyra then tells him she's seen people with their demons cut out and how empty they looked. She tells him about Marisa and her plans and how she stopped them from cutting her just in time, as she didn't want Lyra to be damaged, although, of course, Marisa is happy to damage others. Lyra lingers on the thought of Pan being cut away from her. Asriel comments that the bond between demon and human is incredible, and when the link is severed, it provides a huge, bur a huge burst of energy. <gasps> he asks her what the most important question is, which she gets right. Where is dust from? We said this in the books, but oh my god, so many, so many red flags. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. It, it. I like that they bring this up because Azrael's not phased really by Lyra being like, "Isn't it terrible?" And Azrael's like, "Maybe, <laughs> I guess." But knowledge, though. Uh, there are some really great shots, though, again, in this lab of Asriel and Lyra talking, and I'd have to watch it more closely, but it feels like in some of his moments of honesty, his face is more fully lit, but as Lyra discusses this question and red flags happen, and Asriel's like, maybe, talking about that immense burst of energy, it feels like, I think his face is suddenly obscured in darkness, like, his intentions. His dark intentions? Yes. He looks at the photograms of the Aurora with her and talks about crossing worlds. He asks her basically to explore and find dust with him, much like what Coulter had been asking. She says she's done her job in all of this, and he tells her dust makes her alethiometer work. He knows the master didn't send her to give him the alethiometer, and he says he's glad she came anyway because he was hungry for a 21-ounce medium-rare T-bone, you see. Oh my god. I'm just saying. You're just saying. He says, you're, he says, you don't come from nothing, Lyra. You're the product of something extraordinary. So this is, of course, that third nod, right, to Mrs. Coulter saying she could be extraordinary. And Will and his mother, Elaine, as well. Um, I'm glad that they kept the everybody's special shindig in here. Mm. Yeah, it, it ties back, right, as you said, that nod to Mrs. Coulter, Will, Lyra... Those earlier episodes were, as you pointed out, like Lyra yearning to be extraordinary. I think you tweeted about that, that from our account, that connection between Lyra and Will. And, you know, it's not that Lyra's the product of something extraordinary, though thank you, Asriel, for reminding us about the extraordinary sex that you had with Marissa Coulter. <laughs> Lyra didn't need to know it, but... Uh, but Actually, though, you know, she's not. The point is, as Mrs. Coulter phrases it, she's like, Lyra herself is extraordinary, as is Will. Even though he's like, no, I'm not. And it's like, shut the fuck up, Will, you are. Believe in yourself. I think they really did nail this scene, though, because they didn't go too far into exposition. It wasn't just an info dump where we've had some moments this season that very much so teetered on the edge of info dump only and exposition overload. And this didn't. They... I was actually very impressed with the scene with the amount of info they put into it, mm. but it didn't feel like we were slogging through it. The chemistry between the actors was palpable. Everyone mixed well. I'm just really grateful that it was concise. There was a great amount of tie into the books. It was cut. Some of the fat was cut, mm -hmm. but it was still the same message. They did great at adapting this. I agree. And I think part of it has to do with, yeah, cutting it away from that previous scene, because then you get a different emotional beat. Right, because when it was in the context of, you know, Lyra and Lord Asriel disagreeing as it is in the books, this scene kind of feels a little adversarial, but here it feels like 
Lord Asriel's almost trying to make up for that. You get him being like more sympathetic towards his daughter, and he almost feels he he approaches her very gently. It feels more fatherly, and I like that delivery that they did there. It's not the way I read the scene when I read the books, but I think I'm like, no, this is more right. I like that even it wasn't even fraternal in the manner of it was more like he saw her as an equal almost. Um, it felt like obviously not really like he respected her because you know he murders her best friend but um no like says i, I disrespect you like murdering your best friend yeah but i hope that no one ever murders my best friend because that would be awful i agree i don't even know who you're talking as about. the best friend i'm talking <laughs> no, about you that would be awful chloe wouldn't want this at these times chloe would never <laughs> forgive you <laughs> Someone with the subtle knife over you. You, no, please, my children. <laughs> and they're like, you don't have children, ma'am. And you're just like, all of my podcast friends. <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> so there's a really quick succession of events. Uh, we do get some action happening in this episode as we go. Lyra curls up in a blanket. Coulter watches the sky. And then Boreal goes back to stalking Will. Yes. In the words of some some people, you know, get a job. Get a job, Boreal. Holy shit. Get a new job, at least. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he discusses the Tower of the Angels with a detective, saying that the legends are true. Then his snack demon hisses lightly. Good boy. <laughs> Watching him. The best part of Boreal is his demon. I wanted to hear the snack voice. I'm like, what does it sound like? I get that the villains don't really have their... Except for Lord Azrael to have their demon stalking, but I want to hear this go like. He's not a villain, Eliana. He's a free thinker. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh god, he says that Lord Boreal will lead them. No, sorry. Lord Boreal says that Will will lead them to the knife, and sneaks like. Yes, probably. I don't know. That's my voice for snake. Do we have the snake's name? No, but you're now hired, so I guess you are the demon. My my performance. Give it up for His Dark Materials season two, the first voice actor announced for the season, Eliana. Clap, 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 clap. She'll also be voicing all the bears. Yeah, more for all the bears. All of them. Sorry, Joe Tanberg, you've been replaced. I'm just kidding. Give us your best roar, baby. Hiss with me, sisters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> honestly though they do a good job you were saying it earlier of like establishing in this final episode it just ties in so well of how we're going to see all this in the next season and props they wove it in so well I'm just great job team and it's going to be so like surprising still because somehow Will hasn't seen Boreal we only there's right. no more Thomas thank god so now we just have D.I. Detective Inspector oh well, I forgot his name Walters, Walters probably something, whatever. Waskins, Watsons. <laughs> Will rides a bus across town. Is the next action, and again, windows. <laughs> Will's Absolutely. leaning on a window. I didn't think about it, and you said that, and then I looked at. I was like, God damn it, she's right. I'm always looking out for those windows. <laughs> Airships begin to emerge in the star-spangled sky. <laughs> Chloe wrote this. <laughs> Uh, Lyra wakes wakes up and Thorold is packing up all of their things. He tells her that Asriel has left and she realizes Roger's gone too. Asriel took him in the night. She realizes what he wants from him. Energy. 
I'm so glad it showed Lyra figuring that out on her own to Thorold. She didn't need Thorold to tell her why Roger's gone. Uh, it's important to show that Lyra is really clever and she can piece this stuff together. And I'm glad they're building it up, but at the same time, I'm hoping that she's not too refined when we start the season because I just love that dynamic between her and Will at the beginning. She's that bratty, wild, princess, feral girl. You know what I mean? She is a feral princess. She's like, what, what the fuck are canned food? She's like, fucking eggs? What are eggs? She's like, you can cook? <laughs> yeah, I guess Roger always did the fucking cooking and bringing of the yeah. food to her. Now that I think about it, like in those first Shh. few episodes, Christ. Even here, he's handing her chocolate. Oh, right. She can't even reach her own mug. Christ, how yeah, did this girl survive she is this? useless. <laughs> how did she survive this long? Lyra's like, Pan, should we go to the other world? And Pan's like, yeah, it'll be great. What? You literally live with her, Pan. You know her. Did she even bring a to like a toothbrush? Thorold had no, to think about I this actually, for her. I saw someone on one of the subreddits that was like, was anyone, and they're totally a, not a book reader. They were like, was anyone concerned for Lyra because she didn't bring a backpack? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true, though. Oh, my God. Not even a rucksack, dude. She's just out there walking through the light up room. My God. So something that I thought about though with Thorold, right? He's left he's left with Lyra in his charge. He's given very explicit explicit orders. And it reminds me of the end of last episode where not end of that last episode. It reminds me of that scene in the last episode, right? Where Seraphine and Lee are like, We're going to watch over Lyra. A lot of people are now going to watch over her and her safety. They're doing a great job right now. I mean, they do, theoretically. Like, Lee Scoresby at least feels guilt over not being able to protect Lyra, and he did try very hard. And I'm gonna just say, Thorold didn't really try to stop her. He didn't really try that hard. No, not at all. He wanted to go to the other world. Let Thorold go. Let Thorold have dreams. That's the thing, is it's like, people like Thorold and Roger in this story get no agency and no conviction of their own, right? They just have had to follow these leaders back and forth and yes lyra is a decent person but asriel sucks and well what happened for roger yeah christ and thorold's been around forever i mean he has been a servant with asriel for 40 years yeah yeah he actually was the co-pilot when lyra was brought to jordan college fun fact since we're just balls out spoiling the fucking book now. that doesn't bother me knowing that i figured it was more about Knowing, knowing about Mal- <laughs> yeah, Bal- Malcolm, Malcolm was hurtful. <laughs> this one doesn't bother me. Would you say it was a betrayal? A betrayal, it was. And you didn't mean it, just as Lyra says. I we didn't. I didn't. Pan's like, I didn't. We didn't mean to. And she's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Chloe. <laughs> I ain't meant to hurt you, Eliana. Oh God! <laughs> Lyra yells for Yorick. Yorick calls for his bears to assemble for battle, get the fire hurlers, and Lyra climbs on. They run into the night. Asriel and Roger are under snowfall while Asriel is setting up a mobile lab. Soldiers dismount. Mrs. Coulter is among them. They enter the lab, but it's not empty because Thorold is here. Maybe this is protecting Lyra somehow? I don't know. By, like, stalling them. Mrs. Coulter commands them to not touch anything for fear of booby traps and tells Father McPhail to send the guards away. She looks at Asriel's research and work and then realizes, oh, this is about dust. Well, no. Looks at Asriel's research and work. She ignores Father McPhail, prattling in her ear. Understandable. 
She watches the roarer through a telescope, and then Thorold appears, knocking Father McPhail to the ground, and then aims his gun at Marissa. We are applauding it. Maybe maybe that is, you know, maybe that's what's meant to be Thorold protecting Lyra. It, it is. The best, though, is that Marissa's like, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> she, like, looks at him and then just goes, <sighs> he doesn't have any lines, though, throughout this entire thing. It's very interesting. And Marissa's like, you would never harm me, and asks if Azrael's gone up the mountain. His research shows some sort of energy release, and then she's like, oh no, what is he trying to do with dust? But Thorold does not reveal Lord Azrael's secrets. I don't know if he even knows, you know? I think he has to know some of it, because in my opinion, Azrael is just like ranting and raving to himself all day. That's true, you're right. And then she <laughs> says that Azrael has always been so reckless and never treated any of us well. You included to Thorold, and then she walks off. Damn, she's good. She is good. I'm just saying, like, She's bad, but she's good. She's good at what she does, yeah. which is being bad. <laughs> I think they're really capturing what this real situation, though, is at hand. And Pullman says it best through Asriel in the books. He says, The General Ablation Board, your mother's gang, clever of her to spot the chance of setting up her own power base, but she's a clever woman, as I dare say you've noticed. It suits the Magisterium to allow all kinds of different agencies to flourish. They can play them off against one another. If one succeeds, they can pretend to have been supporting it all along. If it fails, they can pretend it was a renegade outfit which had never been properly licensed. So, A, that gives a little bit of backstory to how the Magisterium operates and how the faction of Marisa and Asriel having separate kind of entities and separate goals and ambitions in this kind of is a big deal because if Asriel won, what do you think the Magisterium would do? Mm. Hopefully be dead, but... Um, everyone knows, though, the hot water Barisa is in. She's literally in hot water. Asriel's literally the only way out of this at this point, even in the books. Yeah. I guess it makes it so important in the end that they choose differently. And she does have a few good points, don't get me wrong, about Asriel herself. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, she's right. And along with that, in those good points, I kind of wonder if there's a little more to Mrs. Coulter, like, not throwing Thorold to the wolves as she says she's like I should throw you to the wolves I don't think it's for Thorold's own benefit I think it's because it gets Father McPhail out of her way I really think she was using that info I mean she was reading it she was reading the equation she said this has something to do with energy she understood how to read that and obviously we know she's clever so I do think that she was not throwing Thorold to the wolves for his own but like she was saying back down and she didn't he didn't get hurt that we know of no i think she's like whatever i'm gonna she, i think she kept to whatever she said her plan was and like you said she can understand those equations because in the books they also asriel points out marissa coulter is the one who makes the basically as they think of it scientific discovery that dust that there's the connection between dust settling on on people during adolescence and she's the one that makes that connection so she she is very smart. Will scrolls through the newsfeed on his phone in a diner. Yeah, a cop enters and Will immediately gets anxious. The cop is looking suspiciously at him. He takes his moment and runs when the cop is preoccupied at the counter and he stalks off down the street. So along with Thorold having no lines in that last scene, you know who else has no lines in this episode? Will. He has no lines in this episode, but... I feel like you can hardly notice because it's definitely intentionally done. He's a quiet kid. 
He's definitely acting the fuck out of this episode, yeah, it's, too. He's doing so well. It's so focused on, like, Amir Wilson's, like, nonverbal acting. It hits so, ugh, so good. The nonverbal acting's so good this episode. So, the next scene, it's back to hiking up the aggro crag for both Azriel and Roger. Yorick and Lyra dismount. The Magisterium begins to rain bullets down. Also, I just want to say, you kind of, like, see fires in this battle, but... Yorick explicitly said that there were fire hurdlers and to get it set up, and quite frankly, I was looking forward to seeing it because we didn't get it in the movie, and I want bears with flamethrowers, and I think everyone wants this. <laughs> I do too, but, you know, the CGI was too expensive. I get it, I get it. There's a budget, but also give me- But also it's like Jack Thor and you literally talked about it and I deserve it. Yeah, I mean, they teased it. They teased it. They were right there from giving me bears with flamethrowers. I want to hold Jack Thorne accountable for a lot of these things and this is one of them. <laughs> bears. Damn it. Yeah, we should tweet. We bear bears. Wait. Wait. Oh, you know, I do think I would. I could see Ice Bear having a flamethrower. He has a lot of other weapons. He's really into weapons. I could see it. He has, a, he has an axe. Another person into weapons is Mrs. Coulter, who's standing in the back of departing armies who are armed, armed, armed with weapons. It's an awesome shot. Her outfit here is something to talk about. The shoulders are so amped up, mm. and the body of the jacket is so tight, and it's very much so like she's encasing herself, right? Like she's wrapping herself. She's keeping herself in. She's keeping herself restrained within the confines of this outfit, but the shoulders having all of that bulk and fur and that heaviness are so telling. Um, it's almost like armor, right? It's like armor uh -huh. around her shoulders and her chest. And I just thought it was such a cool outfit. Very sleek, very tight. Yeah, it is very much like armor. That's true. The music is so good in the scene also. And I just want to plug, if you haven't checked it out, a podcast called The Dust Podcast. And you can find them on Twitter as at the dust podcast uh, we've talked about them before but they also do breakdowns of the music in the series lauren balf the composer for his dark materials has given them a recommendation yorick then grabs lyra esca escaping in an explosion of flame that maybe a it's from the collapsing zeppelin but b maybe it's collapsing because of flamethrowers fire hurls? c it was badass we wanted it. Yorick with Lyra on her, just like riding him out and like the flames behind them. It was fucking superhero shit. Yeah. That was awesome. It was great. It was great. Roger tries to escape, but he's put into Azriel's demon cages. Yorick brings Lyra to a bridge, and this time she must cross alone. I was surprised she didn't say the thing to herself that she has to master her own fear. Yeah, he does. I thought right. that was going to come back. You're right. They, they have a different scene. It's emotional, and I guess they do say goodbye, right, in the books, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know, it felt like it was long, and I was like, we don't have time for this! Roger's gonna die! Yeah. Then we do get to Asriel and Roger, because again, Roger's gonna die. <laughs> Asriel tells Roger that he's sorry that this is happening to him. Is he? There are casualties in war, and this is a war. Yeah, I thought that was shitty. Yeah. It did remind me of this quote, though. Aisha Tariam, who's the author of The Opposite of Indifference, she was the first Middle Eastern editor for The Gulf Today. She has a quote, The cost of war is like an immeasurable tremor that knows no borders. It's shockwaves reverberating across the world, resulting in universal suffering. And that's kind of how I feel about this. Um, all war costs money, but Asriel's not wrong there. 
but he is wrong when he says to Roger, well, sorry, there's casualties. Like, that's not, if you're war, if you're fighting a war and you're able to just say, well, you have to die so that everyone else can live, then your war is wrong. Yeah. That's a pretty shit excuse. He's like, I'm sorry this is happening to you. It's the same Azrael that we saw in the first episode. Lyra is trying to climb up the mountain, but she's faltering. Pan flies ahead to scout what's there and gives her motivation that she needs. Roger's in a cage, Salcilia's next to him. They get close, but they don't make it in time. Lyra reaches the cage, holding Roger's hand through the mesh, and the blade comes down, severing Roger from Salcilia and causing a gigantic explosion. It knocks Lyra and Pan back into the ground, and Asriel watches the light from the sky, the soldiers and bears watching on as well. In those moments before it all happens, Roger in the cage, I feel kind of echoes Lyra when she's put in the box at Bolvangar, and he says, please don't do this, and Lyra will never forgive you. It's kind of like Lyra pleading with the workers about how Mrs. Coulter wouldn't want this, but Asriel doesn't give a fuck. Not at all. I I think it's a great adaptation of this. Uh, There are some aspects of the book that I wish remained, the biggest one being that Lyra gets to Roger just in time to actually try to save him. And here, she just makes it to hold his hand, and it's sad and tragic. But in the books, Pan fights Stalmaria, Mm -hmm. and they almost get away, but Asriel is strong and crazy and keeps Roger in the cage, and it's so close. Lyra's just about to free him. Like, they just almost get their freedom. But Stelmaria's like, nope, got your demon, bitch, and like grabs Salcilia, and Asriel shoves him back in, and then boom, and then she cradles him. And I know that's picky, but I think what it really boils down to is, of course, it's the demons. It, it yeah. was too much to have the demons do all that. I get it. But that being said, holy shit, that happened on the screen. Wow. It was very sad, too. Yeah, I, I also was a little taken aback that we didn't get that scene, because I like that there's that moment of hope, right? It adds that, like, sort of dramatic tension of, she's got him, they're gonna make it, they're gonna get away, and, I mean, this was a more straightforward adaptation. I understand why they had to do it. It, it still worked. It still worked really well. Oh, yeah. But I think you're right, a lot of it did have to do with the demons um, and the budget for it. Coming back to the demons, within in-world, like, we only see this exchange right from Lyra's perspective in the books because you know she's with Roger and they're running away um and his demon is still back there so we don't see Celcilia disappear but here it's confirmed and it kind of comes back to what they were saying in Bull Vanguard with their current iteration of the intercision machine they're like oh there's lower mortality rates they die a lot less but they still sometimes die so it makes sense that Azrael's machine which is like way more rudimentary is a lot less dependable I did like the way that they designed this machine. I think that it was a really well executed and I love that, you know, it had to be worked by hand, seeing that slow crawl of Lord Azrael pulling it down. It, it gives you hope. Lyra's gonna make it. Yeah. Back to what you were saying, good call on the mortality rate for that machine in Bulvanger. Marisa's operation is funded by authority money. Like she has the top of the line Cadillac of killing children machines, <laughs> yeah. right? And Asriel has put this together in his fucking garage after drinking three Miller Lights. Um, maybe five. Maybe Yofer gave him high lifes, you know? Oh my god. Well, I wish Yofer would give me the high life, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but Marisa and Asriel meet under the stars. She tells him that the Magisterium won't allow any of this, but he tells her he's bringing the end of the Magisterium and its oppression of knowledge. 
He invites her to feel the sun of another world, to come with him and fight this war, create a new Republic of Heaven. Their demons embrace behind them. They kiss, they swoon themselves. He tells her to lie about whatever she wants, but don't lie about your ambition, your work, or who you are. But she wants to protect Lyra in this world, she says. She wants her. She wants her with everything she has. She tells him this isn't her journey, it's his, and she leaves. And Azriel and Stelmaria watch her go before they enter into the light. Yeah. I wanted more of the swooning demons, but even at that little snuggle, I was like, <gasps> yeah, that it was intimacy, good. that toxicity that it kind of showed. It showed like a delirious toxicity. And they spend so little screen time together. I guess it doesn't matter how good the chemistry came, but for this one moment, it worked well. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think they, they did a really good job of it. This isn't like a nitpick. It's a question I have. So if it's the sun from another world shining through the window and it comes through, should the snow around it be melted? Probably. Questions. Anyway, um, they did tweak some of the lines and they lessened Azrael's negging. Probably a good choice. They made... Makes him more likable. I guess. As a free That's thinker. true. Uh, well, okay. They made Marissa wanting Lyra much more explicit. And the books, like, she asks after Lyra, and Azra's like, so you still want her, even though she ran from you twice? And I think it's a good choice in terms of the show, making those character motivations clearer for the audience. Um, also, side note regarding the demons. No one needs to know this, but I'm going to bring it up. Because we brought up Cats last episode. We're going to do it again. I watched this episode in the scene literally two hours after watching Cats, the movie. And on a rewatch, like I can't, I can't unthink it when I see those swooning demons, like the nuzzling. I, I, it was there. It was just burned in my mind. That was literally a choice you made. That was a choice that was a creative choice that a cats made, and a creative choice that I made for this podcast. Will walks down a crossroads, much like Eliana. As he walks, the police approach, so he turns the other way, running and jumping the fence, and he hides amidst shrubbery. Wow. Uh, sorry if you can hear my stomach. Lyra wakes in the snow after being knocked out, and Mrs. Coulter walks by the caged body of Roger, lifeless in the mesh, just feet away from Lyra, who is hiding flat against the mountainside. Will sits huddled in the garden while Lyra climbs to Roger's body. She holds his body in the light while Pan searches for Celcilia, who's gone, as Eliana mentioned. Lyra sobs, wondering how she could have gotten all of this so wrong. Pan consoles her, but the ink's dry. She didn't get to say sorry or goodbye. Roger's gone. And worse, it's her fault. Pan tells her, maybe dust isn't bad, like the adults are telling us. They've done nothing but lie to us anyway. We could find it. We could protect it. Yes. We gotta make sure they don't win. That was a hopeful line. Mm -hmm. Pan and Lyra say goodbye to Roger. Lyra kisses him on the head. Uh, it was... This is... <sighs> so sad. There's some things that I love and some things that I wish were in the adapted dialogue. I don't hate it. It was it was a good scene. I'll start off negative with a negative, not too negative. Something that I didn't think about until watching this episode um, is the significance of Lyra crossing that bridge up the mountain to Azrael and Roger with just her and Pan. I'm sure I'm not the first person to talk about this. Like, her own soul 
goes on the other side, right, to urge her forward. And I think it's very important that Yorick can't fit on this bridge because it forces Lyra to go alone. And she has to make this journey and confront Lord Asriel and save her friend through her own strength. And it ends up being her own loss entirely. And I think it's really meaningful when she has that dialogue with Pan in the books about crossing the bridge to the stars. Um, another bridge alone Right. And she has to cross this tiny passage by herself, and she realizes that, yes, she is alone, but not alone, as she has her own soul panned by her side. And I think this is another one of those missed opportunities to discuss the importance of demons to their humans, because I didn't love that Pan and Lyra say they were always alone except for Roger, but they don't reinforce that celebration of the self by saying we're not alone because we have each other. We are whole and one. That's something I wish was there. But I do love how Lyra in this moment directly addresses Roger here and she promises things to him. I think it's a really beautiful choice and is the right emotional choice for the scene other than just like only discussing about him and how they failed him. Yeah. yeah. And they did. And she knows and that's probably one of the saddest parts too yeah. is that there's nothing she could have done differently really on her part. Like she was kind of pawning it in a way. She, you know, showed up and the strings were already pulled and now she knows that she has to fix it. And that's part of her character, her moral character, right? Like she thinks that she has to fix this and make it right for them. So, yeah, she has to atone for what she's done to Roger. It's in a way her own kind of personal redemption arc, she feels. Well, a cat appears by Will next, one of the most important cats in the world. This is such a fun part of the episode. He moves closer to it, smiling, and the cat walks through a gate. He follows it. Okay, it's not Kerjava, obviously, (laughs) yet, but they might just decide to have this cat show back up several times and be Kerjava and not actually die or disappear. You know what I mean? Yeah, or Kerjava just looks like it, yeah. Yeah. I was so excited, though, about this cat, and the coloring of it's perfect for a tabby. It reminds me of this thing Will says in the story, though, in The Subtle Knife, that he never had real friends, just Moxie. And I feel that deeply as a kid. Don't get me started on my loneliness with cats, but uh, it made me really sad. Yeah, the cats were always there for him. Lyra holds Pan in her hands and goes toward the light. And then Will squeezes through the gate. Like, how skinny are you? Wasn't It wasn't <laughs> a large gap, okay? It wasn't. And then it finds a window. <sighs> Lots of prominence there. Did you notice that he puts his hand through? And then he brings it back and he folds his fingers up, except for two of them. I didn't, be, but I did because you pointed it out to me. It was well, It's a great catch. It was nuts to see that. That made me go, because <gasps> I'm one of those assholes that like any small thing is important to me. I'm like, do you think they meant it? So I'm over here punching my boyfriend in the arm, just like, oh my god. I think like he must have been directed to do something like that. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And I'm sure they all are slapping about it. They're all like, oh, 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 do this and make sure to really, you know, zoom in on his fingers there. Yeah, but they deserve it. Yeah, they do. It's good. It was great. It was so good. It's good. Also good. The editing between these two scenes, just like paralleling Will and Lyra in these moments, really great. I'm going to call out, like, worth noting that I think we're getting a fake out here, right? Um, That will probably be more impactful for those who haven't read the books. And I like that. I do think the show is giving us this misdirection because we've seen Boreal go through this window multiple times into ours. And I mean, it's been said in the books, right, that Lord Asriel opening this window, 
hear that huge burst of energy disrupted a lot of like the dust and the multiple worlds and how they all flow into each other. So I think that maybe this window has shifted and no longer opens into Lyra's world, but into Sidagaze. Because it's the same window, right? I mean, either way, your theory was right. We ended it with them going through their separate windows. I would say that to close the actual TV episode portion of this, I want to close it with a quote from a book. You guys might have heard of it. It's called The Northern Lights, or The Golden Compass, depending on where you are. Depending on what world you're born in. (laughs) So Lyra and her demon turned away from the world they were born in and looked toward the sun and walked into the sky. Goosebumps. That ending gave me goosebumps. What a bop. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. Her with all that light. That was so cool with that like light, just like she was walking down a lit hallway. Yes. But it was a lit hallway of the freaking sun of another world. God. And it was awesome. the vibrating it was awesome. fibers of the window. Yeah. So and good. Will, that small smile that Will had when he got through the window, like he could be happy. He could be happy. My son's going to be happy. For like a bit. Yeah. <laughs> a bit. <sighs> I love this last line. I'm bringing in this thing that I had considered bringing up in a different episode, but I decided to save it for here. It's this thing, this kind of idea that I've been mulling of what I call the movable garden, referring to the Garden of Eden. And regarding Lyra's story, I think what we see is each time she's sort of forced out of a different Garden of Eden, out of this moment of innocence. And I think that's very reflective, right? of how it is when people grow up. And I think this is something Philip Pullman has thought of. And this is something that Philip Pullman has thought of and is directly referencing when he uses this Garden of Eden metaphor throughout his entire books, where, you know, first Lyra's place of innocence, her childhood, it's Jordan College, and then she's forced out of it. She chooses to leave that sort of cradle of of the university. And then she's with Egyptians, and then she's forced from... This The place in which she grew up makes her way north, and then she's forced out of her own world. She chooses to leave the world in which she was born in, and that's a place of her own childhood and innocence as well. And then she goes on this journey throughout multiple worlds, right? She goes with Will, and then eventually she has to leave all of these other worlds. She has to leave Will, which becomes another place of joy, of her happiness and it's them in this garden of where the Malefa live this very pure seeming world uh, where things seem so simple and that becomes its own garden of Eden as well and where they eat the fruit and taste of it with one another and then they find out and learn from Xenafia? Xenafia? Maybe I got this name right? Going off the top of my head and and then they're forced out of that and have to leave one another and that sort of innocence and joy is lost as well. And I think that this is supposed to be that adulthood, right? I, I'm sure I'm not the first person to think about this, but like there's that inability to return to it. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the books when all of the windows are closed and they must learn to move forward with their lives. They can no longer return to the Garden of Eden, even though Lyra returns to Jordan College. It's not the same college because she's no longer a child. The Garden of Eden and that time is only a memory and that's why you have that last the very last chapter of the last book being like the botanical garden the botanic garden where she and will can visit every now and then sit on a bench with one another and they can visit that place they can visit the place in which they were 
with one another. You can sometimes through your memories, right? That imagination come back to your childhood and innocence, but you can never truly ever return to it. And I think that's something that I love about these books. And that's why this is so impactful as lot and this line intentional of they turned away from the world they were born in. Yeah, they're rejecting that world, that home. Yes. And of course, in the end, they have to go back to that world. They're forced to go accept that world and to grow up. Yes. And I mean, you see it in so many fantasy series in different ways, right? There's Narnia, there's Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Um, You got what the room of requirement in Harry Potter or Hogwarts in general being a safe place that's no longer safe. Yeah. After a while, Um, it was always there's no place safer than there or Gringotts. Well, no way. And you even see it with, you know, Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. in the Shire. I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings reader, but there's a line in Return of the King where Sam and Frodo talk and Frodo says, Sam, it's I can't come back. It's ruined for me now. Like, there's too much pain, too much trauma for me to be here anymore, for me to remain here. And it's a little different, obviously, for Lyra. She has to go back. But how do you go back after seeing all that? You can't. Right. You you just learn to live and grow move forward. And that's what they do. And that's something we'll probably discuss more in these lantern slides, which uh, speak to those in those vignettes that we get of their life after. But I mean, as you pointed out, it's in a bunch of these series. And I think that's because this is a universal feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a very strong theme for not only a more youth kind of fiction, which, as we know, Pullman didn't really write these as youth. It was marketed as such, but it does have a youth feel. Your protagonist is a youth. Youths. It's very different. Youths. Hello, fellow I just youths. don't get them. <laughs> I just don't get the youths. But it, it's true. It's something that's very strong. And I think we're going to see it played a lot more in Subtle Knife as a lot of this magic ramps up in season two of His Dark Materials. And if you guys are really in between that wait, We are going to be starting to cover The Subtle Knife, the second book in the trilogy uh, for His Dark Materials, starting sometime in this new year coming up. Yes, I'm so excited. I'm glad we've been able to begin this discussion of Will through the show. So obviously that's going to carry on in 2020. Yeah, I really can't wait for you guys to meet our son Will in full because right now you've just seen some flashes of him. You know he's a good boy, but I think you guys are really going to love him. Yeah, and I, I'm looking forward to whenever we get the announcement for season two of His Dark Materials. I'm already itching for it. Very itchy. Very itchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds weird. Feminine mysteries. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening this whole season with us, you guys. Uh, it was new for us to cover this show. You know, we've been covering His Dark Materials in the books now. And I think that we know what works, what doesn't work. I think the next book is going to be really fun for us to cover. And we really can't wait for season two to come out. Yeah, I've been so pleased with like, there's been a lot of surprises even within the show, even though we know the story. And I'm excited. And again, thank you everyone for joining us with it. And for we've learned a lot from people writing in, sharing their thoughts with us. So yeah, never stop doing that. If you guys have anything you want to share with us, you can always tweet it to us at girlsgodcanon, C-A-N-O-N. Feel free to send us a direct message or a tweet discussing the season finale now that I think spoiler kind of uh, clauses are being lifted on the internet. And make sure you send us an email if you want to talk about it there too, if you don't feel comfortable tweeting it. Girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes. You can find us on any of these various podcast platforms. For example, there's iTunes. 
Google Play, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, anything else that anyone else has decided to put us on. Yeah, absolutely. We keep showing up with our RSS feed places. I love it. Of course, don't forget about our December patron episode that will be up here at the end of the month. For all patrons, $5 and up, we are going to be covering the lantern slides that appear in the end of all three of the novels in the main trilogy for His Dark Materials. Okay. Um, And, of course, thank you again, everyone, for joining us on this journey. I've been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I've been another one of your hosts, Chloe. See you all on the other side. Of the the window? Of the year. Also the window. I'm begging. <laughs>